Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Learning Experience Lab. Today we're taking a past, present and future approach to the topic of educational technology with our guest speaker, Maria Zayons. Maria has been the editor of the EdTech magazine eMentor, as well as a professor at the Warsaw School of Economics until very recently. She first got into contact with us at Feedback Fruits to talk about writing an article for eMentor, during which I saw she had not just a wealth of knowledge in the field, but overflowing enthusiasm to boots. So after our very first talk, I was already dead set on bringing her onto the podcast to benefit from this veteran perspective on learning and technology. For the first few minutes, we chatted about the development of computers and computer science in Poland, and around the nine-minute mark, we dive into the educational aspect. I hope you'll enjoy listening as much as I did, so let's jump right into it. I was born quite a long time ago, <laughs> but I studied computer science. That means that I, I, I had the contact with computers when I was a student. As a child, there was no such possibility. It was more or less 10 years after the Second World War, so not entirely different world. But, uh, when I studied, it's quite interesting because at that time, that was late 70s, there were only few computers in Poland at all, or at least in Krakow, which is one of the biggest academic centers in Poland. Warsaw, Krakow was nine just a few cities. There was a big, uh, very expensive uh, computer, American computer, bought by the academic network for the whole academic community in Krakow. So all the universities that, that work, that existed in Krakow at that time had access to that computer. But access means something totally different than you think now. Because access was uh, was in this way, and we have had to perform uh, um, to punch uh, the cars, the special cars, and then collect a deck of those cars and go to the to the special room and give it to so-called operator. And we didn't see the computer, and that was that was the same. Actually, uh, I was so curious: how can I study computer science? And not to be able to see the computer. And uh, I had a colleague who worked as a technician, technical operator uh, in, in the center. And he said, well, when you come during the night, <laughs> I can let you <laughs> go. Because, because the computer was uh, so built that it was much more expensive to repair it when you switch it off and then something happens it was better and safer to let it run all the the days and rise around so it didn't stop never we were said that it is better and cheaper that means that some people had to be uh, present in all those rooms where the computer worked and uh, i remember I went there with my husband at 10 or 11 p.m. <laughs> and I saw the big room and the big plastic unit, let's call it big, I mean five and three meter and a lot of, a lot of uh, buttons and lights. And I thought, oh, 
Okay, what can I do with that? <laughs> Nothing, of course. That was my first experience. And moreover, I couldn't tell that about that my colleagues, my student fellows, because it was illegal. <laughs> and when did personal computers become a thing? Well, well, did you see that while you were studying? Uh, not really. When I was finishing my studies, uh, the university bought the uh, so-called mini computer. It was Polish production. And I was among, I, I was working then on my master thesis and my uh, supervisor offered me and some other colleagues to prepare some, uh, some software for this mini computer. Uh, but personal, exactly, it was, well, I can tell you another uh, funny story. It was 1986. I went to Germany. I had three kids at the time and uh, didn't work professionally, stayed at home. And I went to my friends in Köln, Cologne, and I intended to buy the computer that was Atari, one of the first personal computers. And uh, actually, uh, we planned to, uh, to bring it to Poland, to sell it, to give back money for my journey, because it was the journey, just the, the, the visit to the friends. And we didn't have much money, so I, I thought I will just sell it. Yeah? And I remember we went to the shop in Cologne with my friend. We bought the computer. We've ordered it first and bought And I kept it in my hands, staying on the street in front of the car <laughs> and, and in front of the, of the shop and thought, no. Being a computer scientist and having a computer in hands, I must keep it. That's, that's, that's the precious tool I have. And it happened so that well, I came home and my parents said, okay, we'll borrow you some money. We help you keep it because you are the, the, the computer scientist. You, you have to, to have a tool at least. So that was the, but we mostly use it for, for playing. And we have then a lot of family and friends who came to play sometimes even the whole night. When you were standing outside the car with this computer, was that the moment where you saw more value in pursuing this future than selling it to make money for the journey back? Uh, actually, I don't remember. It was quite a long ago, but uh, I, I, I just remember the feeling that no, I can't lose it. Uh, I, I must keep it. <laughs> it's I, without any particular idea. What can I do with that? I, I think. But uh, I felt. I, I remember. I felt separated from my job. I felt that the, that my knowledge. I lose my knowledge every day, every month. It gets older and older and more useless. The computer science wasn't changing so much as it does now, but anyway, it was changing fast. So I felt uh, disconnected with my profession. And I got the impression that when I try to do something with this computer, uh, I, will tr I will be able to catch up <laughs> with what is changing. Yeah. 
something well, like that. Yeah, digitization hasn't gone away, so it seems like you made the right decision. Yeah. But、uh, I wanted to ask you where the educational strand worked into that story.、Um, actually, I was、uh, completing my、uh, studies without thinking that I will teach anyone. I, maybe there was a little, little, a tiny dream about staying at the university. And teaching, but there was actually no chance for that, especially that I have a daughter at that time. So th- there was not such a possibility. And actually, I stayed at home for another couple of years, and then I decided、uh, I felt that I, I I need to work to do something with my knowledge, with my skills, what I with what I've learned, and、uh, I I prepared for getting、uh, to job. And one day, my friend came and asked, "Aren't you going to to start your job?" "Yes, I am. I plan it because she she working then at the university, pedagogical university. It's the university that teaches teachers, current teachers who want to develop their professional skills and future teachers as well. Yeah, the friend worked in the computer science department, which was fast developing at the time, and she said, "We have free." Job positions. Maybe you want to join us. That was the beginning. And when I started, it was 1989, <clears throat> because it was the computer,、uh, because it was the pedagogical university. The main feature of that university, as I said, was preparing teachers. So we didn't have then the the computer science faculty. We didn't、uh, educate computer scientists, but every pro- teacher. Teacher profession, every specialty of teachers, had to be prepared to use technology. As I said, 1989. So、uh, we we mostly taught students from different faculties how to use computers, how to use word processor, <laughs> PowerPoint, things like that. So word processing, <laughs> other softwares、uh, were becoming the more. Before the internet era. Okay. 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 <laughs> so we then, obviously, we have we had to change the program,、uh, the curriculum of of the subjects we taught,、uh, because of the development in technology, and in mid nineties or late nineties,、uh, there were also the the in, there was the internet connection、uh, at the university. So we also taught students how to use internet first. The the, the Web browser and then how to create the、uh, web pages. So we taught them how to use HTML, <laughs> things like that. Okay, and this is a very broad question, but what impact did you see the internet having on education back then? Was it quite an optimistic picture that you had? No, <laughs> sorry, so <laughs> sorry.、Uh, mostly my my.、Uh, View about the technologies in in education is pessimistic because of the fact that it didn't change, despite、uh, despite this long period of time. In my opinion, it didn't change much in education. It's a pity. It should change. It has the potential, but it's not used. That's my private opinion. So the technology isn't necessarily the thing stopping itself from helping, but it's the adoption. It's the fact that people don't know how, how to or don't want to use it. How people it. use it. That's how the, that's the point. 
going back to the internet, uh, I think that was it was very very important uh, technology when it appeared at schools, no doubt, as in other areas of our life. But I remember, uh, as I said, we taught teachers. That means also that students had to have intern internships at schools. And I remember we went with students because there was one uh, guide, one supervisor for every group of students. At that time, I think late 90s, early uh, this century, uh, we went uh, to schools and we saw something It was, in my opinion, devastating because kids were used to using internet for finding information and they didn't process it at all, just copied from the internet. And then I, I still remember after more than 20 years, I think, or more or less 20 years, one kid in a class in, in a, a lower secondary school presenting something. I don't remember the topic, but the impression was the kids is staying in the front of the class, keeping the paper, sheet of paper, in uh, his hands and reading aloud something. And we, uh, this, the, the impression I had and the students the same, we, we talked uh, later uh, about that. We got the impression that he didn't understand even a single word what he read. He just copied from Wikipedia and read it aloud. And the problem was that the teacher didn't say anything didn't comment it, just fix, okay, it's ticked, it's complete, he had his, he, he has done his part, his task, and that's why I am uh, pessimistic. Yeah, and I think that's still happening today. In Yeah, exactly, in many places, in many schools, it happens all the time again, not every time, not everywhere, of course, yeah, but it happens. And, and that's the problem. It's not enough to find the information on the internet, yeah. Do instructors need to adapt their learning objectives and what they ask of students, how to assess them, to make up for this copy-pasting, remember and repeat Problem. Definitely yes. Yeah, they should. They, in my opinion, the teachers should formulate the task they give this, their students in a way that it needs processing. It needs uh, assessing the the, the 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 information. Not to mention the the uh, fake news. Yeah, that's another problem nowadays. But uh, also twenty years ago or fifteen years ago. It was also the problem because when you read something, you have to be able to value what you've read, to to dig out some 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 points, and maybe maybe at, I met only those teachers who weren't able to change it. Maybe I don't know. There were some exceptions, of course. I I want to be honest. It's not that everything is bad. No, there are many passionate teachers who, who do incredible things with their, their students in any country, in Poland, in, in the Netherlands, in, in the US or anywhere in the world. But I still 
see too many examples of teachers that was also seen during the pandemic that they not don't exactly know what to do with with those tools that that are available that's that's the reason for my pessimism now you can also copy paste from a book from something you've read uh, any written or visual information so what makes technology and specifically the internet and access to wikipedia what makes that so much more problematic in my opinion started also 20 years ago at the beginning of this century but it's it's still undeveloped it still requires a lot of work a lot of research and a lot of um, training teacher training that's that one thing but anyway maybe i will jump to another question if you allow if not you can just stop me uh, i've mentioned uh, we, we've mentioned a pandemic before we started to be honest uh, a year ago in april may last year i, I mean 2020 i uh, had a lot of hope that finally this unusual, very difficult situation will work for the success of e-learning, of online learning. Mm. It didn't because, because people, teachers in, in the uh, large amount, I mean uh, as a total, didn't know how to teach online. It's not enough to have Zoom or Google Meet or Teams. It's not enough. And now we here in Poland, I, I'm not sure how it looks like in the other countries. Maybe you can add something. But in Poland, um, we, I hear the discussions. What is e-learning? What's online learning? People try to distinguish be between uh, synchronous and asynchronous learning and try this is online learning and this is e-learning. Complete mess. Uh, and people think that in in the let's say classic learning or teaching with technology, technology enhanced learning, let's say better, uh, the teacher is absent. You have pre-recorded the course with based on the good methodology, uh, instructional design properly, but it's already prepared, and students can get access to that and work let's say on their own, more or less. And this pandemic online learning is the, uh, in the understanding of many people, teachers in Poland now, is when you teach synchronously, but it doesn't mean it's better. Those people doesn't claim, do not claim it's better because it is like transferring the, the typical lecture in one-to-one -one mode into online. So this one is wrong and this one is wrong and people, in my opinion, are lost. And that's again the problem yeah, with technology. Now you asked what I'd seen from this and it's quite on the other side, actually. I have a nice position of being able to kind of cherry pick where it's gone well. But the question that comes to mind for me for quite a while now has been, Whose responsibility is it to train these teachers if institutions themselves have not been used to this sort of integration? External companies like Feedback Fruits, we do 
everything in our power to provide the support to create content like Nee and I do in an instructional and sometimes even advisory framing. So I sometimes feel like we've taken that upon ourselves to be there and to help with this integration and that it's a necessary part. In the Netherlands, something I'm also seeing is iCoaches, people who are being hired now over the pandemic, chiefly for the purposes of training those teachers with these tool sets. I had a Jeroen Mulder on the podcast who not only works as an iCoach at a college here, but also in his free time has a YouTube channel where he largely goes into Microsoft Teams, but also other tools, other integrations, plugins, and says, this is how you use it. This is how it works. This is what's new. And that seems to me like such a small part of what actually needs to be happening, that these resources and training opportunities become more mainstream and accessible and widely distributed and not someone, one person deciding on their own to start a YouTube channel to address this huge problem, which is the lack of training. So back to my initial pondering of whose responsibility is it? It's a very difficult question. I'm not sure I can answer it, but I can tell mostly from, from our country because I, 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 I try to follow what happens in many other countries, but anyway, I have the more precise information of what happens in Poland. Of course. And I can, over those more or less 30 years, I can remember a few projects even the, the national projects funded by EU finance uh, or something like that, uh, which were aimed at training the teachers how to use I ICT. But what was surprising at, and at the same time frustrating for me and from some others who observed that, that all those projects started from the same point. I mean, to mm. teach teachers how to use text editor, PowerPoint, Excel, things like that. And even if it referred to other uh, applications, more common, let's say, it also concentrated mostly on uh, showing how to use this app. And that's yeah. not the point, in my opinion. So the integration of those tools into the pedagogy, was that never there? Did you not see that? Uh, yeah, I've seen that, but not, uh, not uh, so commonly as I, as, as I saw the, the, uh, the instruction, what are the functions of the, of the, of the application. And then I, I talked with, uh, with some teachers and they said, okay, it's not enough. That's not enough. And um, I, I, I don't know uh, who should be responsible. Maybe, uh, well, to be not, not only um, complaining, not, just not to complain all the time. I see some, 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 some good points, some values, which happened last year or so among the school teachers. Because what one, uh, the one perspective is from teaching teachers from the university or from, in general, teaching students at the university, at different universities. And the other perspective is the school teachers. 
And I saw a lot of groups on LinkedIn, maybe not on LinkedIn, maybe mostly on Facebook. The groups where teachers organized themselves, that was the bottom-up approach, yeah? People who, who exchange their knowledge, who share their experience with uh, some applications, who, who publish the examples, how they used particular, particular tools in their teaching. I see the potential and I see the interest among the teachers. And that's, that's the hope for, for mm -hmm. students, for, for our kids or in my case, grandkids, yeah? But there is still um, the lack of, of the concept how to support teachers in being prepared uh, for, for changing the education while using the technology. Uh, again, I can talk from the, from the university background that many teachers even cannot imagine that they could uh, postpone lecturing. I mean, the, the strict lecture. The, they want to, to talk 45 minutes as in the classroom on Google Meet or uh, Microsoft Teams and just talk, 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 having the PowerPoint somewhere in, in the background or, or on the other screen. And I try to discuss with some of those people, why do you believe that the lecture is so important? And then mm -hmm. <laughs> I wasn't able to convince them that it's not. And well, that's, it's what that, they used that's to. That's the mental barrier, in my opinion. Yeah, it's familiar though, and I've I think I've talked about this before. This traditional, I'm going to give an example of a philosophy or history professor standing in front of their auditorium with a captivated audience of students who are paying attention. Now, someone who has been used to that, I can imagine would like to recreate a similar sort of captivating narrative lecture style, even where, yes, Maria, we can agree that transposing offline into online teaching styles, one-to-one -one and trying to copy everything, it doesn't work. But how do you overcome that mental barrier? How do you convince teachers that focusing on, now if we can be so bold as to suggest some topics, things like focusing on um, the construction of a learning community, on the importance of that social cohesion and interaction inside and outside of class. Group work, I think, becomes more important. But that transition, that means learning new stuff, new styles, new approaches. Is there a way w where we can make that process a bit smoother? I think, yeah. Uh, I can give you the example of a blog uh, which I follow. It's um, University of Sussex, TEL blog, Technology Enhanced Learning blog. And I get the impression that those people, that's the center of learning with technology. I don't remember the exact name, but, but uh, anyway, it's a group of people who uh, try to support and to advise the, the teachers at their university but actually, uh, anyone can subscribe to their blog, as, as I mentioned, I, I'm also the subscriber. Uh, although it's mostly aimed at, at the local community, they try to, to familiarize those people with different aspects of technology. 
once they write about using Canva because they use that that system at their university, but on the other uh, blog post they write about accessibility issues, uh, about uh, different uh, pedagogical approaches, things like that. So it's not enough to tell people, yes, you have the, this is your account to MS Teams or Zoom or anything like that. Just use it. People, I think people are, maybe it's informal, hungry of the knowledge, how, how to use the technology effectively, how to change it. Some people, some because others do not want to change anything because it's more or less convenient or they think they are too old or I don't know. Can you be an effective teacher if you're not willing to keep learning the developments in teaching? It depends on the subject. Okay. You can't be the effective teacher when you are teaching computer science. No way. But uh, I think my, my colleagues who are mathematicians will not be angry on me. You can teach mathematics for many years without any change because it's the subject that doesn't change fast. I talked to some colleagues who, who, who told me that it's very difficult to, to progress scientifically in mathematics because what could be solved has already been solved. Mm. What could be proved has been proved. And what is difficult to be proved or to, to be solved it's still difficult. As soon as yeah. you mentioned domain variability, I agree with you. My mind went straight to maths of it's been done this way. Um, it's worked this way since before the Greeks, the Nubians. But <laughs> even if the subject is staying the same, the learners aren't. Is that something that needs to be factored into how even a a very successful traditional teaching approach which can be applied to maths does it need to take into account learner variability learner differences which i think we can agree today are bigger than ever yeah you are right but when you are, are the teacher who teaches the same topics for 20 years the person doesn't have to see the difference or that, that the learners are different. Maybe it's it, it's not possible any, anymore. I, I do not teach since five years, so I, I'm not sure. But I remember once, a couple of years ago, the lecture for uh, math students, as I mentioned, the ICT in math teaching. Yeah? And I uh, prepared the presentations, which were quite new then, a couple, couple of years ago, as I mentioned. And I gave them the presentation, the slides, so they knew they had access to that and tried to make my lecture. There were more than 300 students in the, in the room and I tried to make uh, the lecture interesting, attractive, uh, to keep their attention, things like that, which, which is very difficult, especially with those big groups. And I remember after a few lectures, I observed and told them even, you know what, when I make you taking notes from the blackboard, there is a silence in the room and you are taking those notes. When I show you something on the slide, you are talking your attention get lost totally. 
disappeared. Yeah, it was strange because I spotted that from the other lectures when you uh, explain difficult math concepts and you write the formulas on the on the on the blackboard. I remember from my studies as well because we have we had a lot of math at the time, and moreover we didn't we didn't have the the textbooks for my for my subjects mid seventies as I said. We we were keen on taking carefully notes and listening. I remember that I had the difficulty to following what the teacher is explaining and taking notes at the same time. I was able either. Uh, writing or listening and following mm -hmm. to understand that because there, there were concepts and uh, I spotted with those students that they were used from the other lectures or other classes during their studies that they have to take notes to write down what's on the blackboard. The, my observation was that they were totally unprepared to having something ready by the use of technology. Mm. And I that was, I think, 20, 25 years ago. And I, I believe it didn't change much since then. I can see where you're coming from. And there could be so many different reasons for it. But one that sprung to my mind was mathematics can be quite a, well, knee says um, static in a sense. But I was going for operational, procedural internalization of formulas and functions and just needs to be written down and worked out and only by practicing these written problems which are done on pad and paper or a calculator maybe only by practicing 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 do you actually start to get it a world apart from history where it's not about what has been written down but what has happened how you interpret it how you discuss and talk about it I also wanted to note that you computer scientists have been altering maths education because of things like Python coming along, uh, mathematical computer programming languages, uh, applications like Wolfram, which give us new ways of visualizing and processing data. Now I think that's becoming an integral part of maths education. Our maths teachers are integrating into their teaching. So I am very curious to see how maths teaching is going to change. Uh, well, you are right, and Neil as well, that uh, we have to think about changing the way how we teach. But uh, you must remember that when we are talking about young people, like you are, it's different. When we are talking people uh, in my age, they won't be willing to change their way, no matter whether it helps or not. That they are not ready for changing that. Uh, I just remember another example from um, very dynamic subject when we say math is static, so then computer science is dynamic <laughs> in this context. I had when I when I still taught, I had the lecture about XML. I, I used to teach for more than ten years XML techniques all those structures which are built around XML because XML itself is a very simple text language. But what you can do is with the data uh, presented or stored uh, in, in XML files, it's, it's almost unlimited. And uh, in the curriculum, and there was a lecture 
15, 15 hours uh, in a semester and uh, I don't remember, 30 or 45 hours of uh, classes of, of lab, computer lab, yeah? And uh, so I had the lecture because I had to. And I remember I was nervous when students didn't come to the lecture because, uh, not nervous, I, I was uh, irritated when they didn't come because I intended to present them the theory, the concept, and then I created the, I created the presentations, I published it on the Moodle platform because we used, it was six, seven, eight years ago, so, so uh, we used Moodle for, for many years then. Uh, everything was available for them on the Moodle platform and I intended to use this knowledge stored on the, on the slides as the background, as the as the guide or the help for them, they were the students were allowed to use to, to have it open on the screen during the classes during the lab, mm -hmm. and just to make use of what they've heard during the lecture and what was stored uh, in the presentation. And I used in, uh, different techniques how to motivate them to come to the lecture because I didn't want to repeat the same information in every class, yeah? But I, I thought that's the point to, to, to have the lecture. So I, I used different techniques to motivate them. I, I gave them the, the questions and they got points and they have the, the little tickets they gave when they, leave it, then when they were leaving the class after the lecture. So the frequency, the, 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 the audience was almost full, 95% or, or something like that. But after three or four weeks, I spotted two things. First, they didn't listen to the lecture. They came to the class. Some of the students, the first group of the students came half an hour after the, the lecture was over. And they looked at me as if they heard it for the first time. That was mm -hmm. a one observation. Because they were, in my opinion, they, they felt we, we all have it. She will give it, it, give it to us. So what's the point to listen to her? Yeah? And the other my, my other observation was that uh, during the lecture, they did everything they wanted. They had uh, in their hands laptops, tablets, smartphones. They were showing the, the screens one to one another. Mm. Uh, I saw it all because I usually keep an eye contact with the audience and I was frustrated. And after a few, few weeks, I said, no, no, there is no point in keeping the lecture. And that's, that's the problem with technology. I, I, I stopped teaching, I just retired from teaching, from, from working at the university. But if I had to teach students now, uh, actually, when I was leaving the university, I told my colleagues, if only you have the chance to cancel this lecture, please do it. It doesn't make sense. I, I'm not sure, sure now how would I, would I replace it. But anyway, technology, there is technology, there is information. We have quite easy ways to, to provide the information. And 
I think that the classes should be on creating the knowledge, not providing the information. That's why I'm against the lectures. Uh, if I think about intrinsic motivation to learn and to study, no, of course it comes from within. It has to be something where the learner sees that they gain value. And it sounds like your students thought they would gain more value by having this one screen summary rather than what you seem to have put more effort and time and resources into by preparing these lectures. And so it certainly Maybe. brings up the Maybe. question of um, or what the place is of lectures in hybrid styles of learning these days. But we could also go into how do you intrinsically motivate students? Because my very bad go-to answer for most of that question has been make something graded. Students will want to do something if they get a grade for it, but that's uh, really not even tip of the iceberg, I'm afraid. Are there any other points you'd like to make or tips on how professors could reduce the amount of lectures where necessary, find other ways to motivate or assess their learners? Uh, well, maybe it will sound strange after everything what I've already said, but I believe when, when the teachers try to get familiar with the apps which are available now, we can, if they are familiar with those, with the possibilities of such apps, they can find then another way to organize their classes. I, I think that uh, more collaborative work, more project-based working, more independent inquiry, these are just, these are the methods very briefly, very generally, but these are methods that will help uh, students to uh, develop the skills they will need. Everyone talks about uh, teamwork, about uh, soft skills and things like that, which are necessary uh, in contemporary work. But there is, in my opinion, there is a gap between what we, how we teach and what we teach and what people need. So maybe it's worth to think to make, just to make use of the potential what we have. And we'll definitely thank you very much, Maria. Thank you. It may sound odd, but for me it was refreshing to hear a perspective which wasn't overwhelmingly positive and optimistic about the integration of technology in education. I think we can all benefit from hearing honest experiences about how it doesn't always go as we want, and when we can be concrete about the failures and mistakes we've encountered, the frustrations and disappointments, and when we can really begin to understand those, then that's the only way we can truly address them and work towards solutions. As I mentioned, I operate in a bit of a bubble of talking to the most innovative and optimistic instructors and trying to build their use cases to inspire other educators. And while I enjoy this approach, it's absolutely essential that we understand the real concerns of the countless educators who have been under-supported and who can't always make their voices heard. So all in all, I hope that in education we can continue to listen to and support each other, responding to the real needs of every instructor and faculty. 
Thanks for joining me, listener, for this learning experience. And don't forget to get in touch with any comments, queries, or questions. And for more resources about these topics and more, check out the Feedback Fruits website, where we have tons of use cases, blog articles, technical help, and almost 24-7 support for all your learning design needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a like or comment, as it's the simplest form of feedback. And you know we love feedback. And in any case, do take care. I'll catch you next time.